Job chapter 2 is where we turn this morning to find the gospel, as a matter of fact, in Job. The gospel according to Job, how this Old Testament saint shows us the way to understand God better. Job chapter 2, of course, we've been studying the horrible, horrific catastrophes that have befallen Job, not because he's a wicked, unrighteous sinner, but because he's blameless, because he is upright, because he fears God and he turns away from evil, and therefore he was the perfect candidate for this test or this experiment or this uh, proof that God is good and God is right and God is righteous and God is sovereign and God is able to direct everything according to the kind intention of his will. And you think, boy, those, those things that happened to Job, that wasn't very kind. All of his livestock destroyed, all of his servants destroyed, his children destroyed, 10 children. And yet God is good. God is good in the midst of all these things. We have seen that this is not so much about Job, even though obviously Job is intimately involved with the whole proceedings. This is ultimately about God, this whole narrative of what recorded in the book of Job. It's about God and his sovereignty, his wisdom, his purpose, his righteousness, that God is righteous in everything he does. And sometimes we think, well, what about this and what about that and what about this and that and the other thing? And Yes, God is good even in those things that we would call evil, that we would call bad, that we will call, uh, that's undesirable. I wish that hadn't happened. God is in those things as well. Not in a passive observer status like, you know, he's, his, his hands are tied behind his back. He has the muffle over his mouth. He, he wants to do something. He just can't muster the courage or the strength to do it. That's not God at all. He is seated in the heavens. All the sons of God, even Satan, the accuser, the adversary, he is there in the midst of God. God is on his throne. Nobody challenges God. Nobody puts him in a closet and then does whatever he wants with the world and says, okay, God's ha, ha, ha. That's not our God. When God became flesh and suffered at the hands of his own people, read, you could read, we didn't read it in John, our, our text uh, from last night, I guess we read, that he came unto his own, and he was welcomed with open arms, right? He was just celebrated. Oh, there's the Messiah. No, he was refused. He was rejected. Nobody, nobody, what? No, even John the Baptist. Are you the expected one or should, should we be looking for somebody else? Blessed is he, Jesus said, who does not stumble on account of me. All these things we see, God is in the midst of, of, of all these things. The, the one most wonderfulest things, I know that's not proper speech, but the greatest things that we would expect to see in this world and we have seen in the world and the most darkest, most dismal corners of humanity that nobody knows about. That is just bad. God is in the midst of all these things. And that is not in the midst of accomplishing his good purposes, accomplishing his glory. His glory is on display in all these things. And that's what we see in the book of Job. And that's what we see even at the end of chapter 2. Not the very end, but verses 9 and 10. This is after the disasters befallen Job and his wealth, his, his, his uh, external uh, blessings that he had received from the Lord, not because of his righteousness, but, but through God's favor and grace upon him. But then Satan said, well, obviously, a man will give up all he has in exchange for his life. But stretch, stretch forth or send forth your hand now and touch his body touches bone in his flesh and he will curse you to your face i know it, guarantee it he will curse you god to your face because when you touch his body 
that touches his own self. I mean, okay, livestock and children, I, I wish I had those back, but at least I'm fine. I'm well. I have my health. I have my, my strength. I have my youth or whatever it is. And so Satan says, no, let's, let's move this test a little bit farther. And it's right in line with what God is accomplishing for God's own purposes. So we see, we did see last time that God, through Satan, smote Job, verse uh, 7 says, Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. All aspects of his life are touched by this thing. And they weren't just uh, like chicken pox that are kind of itchy and, and hurtful and that, but, but boils that, that just are painful. They, they scab over, they, they ulcer, they ooze, just nasty stuff. And they're just all over head to foot of his body. And we read last time how he uh, went out and was sitting in an ash heap and was taking a little bit of a potsherd and scraping, scraping himself. Now, we remember, though, that the challenge that, Je- that Satan presented to God was he will curse you to your face, which is verbal speech. We saw last time, I won't rehearse it all, but at the end of chapter one, we saw how Job responded, praising God, trusting him, entrusting himself to him. He hasn't spoken yet after this most severe trial, perhaps. And how do you even put, a, put a, a challenge upon it? Job is there receiving all these horrible curses upon him, and yet he hasn't spoken. He hasn't responded to this thing yet. In fact, the first person to speak here is what we read in verse 9. Let me go back to here. There you go. Verse 9. His wife. We haven't met his wife yet. Now, his wife, by the way, also lost these 10 children, also lost all these, this, the accoutrements, the accessories of wealth, and is now destitute, sees her husband in severe pain, and doesn't know how this is going to end. And so she says to her husband, do you still hold fast your integrity? Honey, dear? I mean, it's not an angry kind of thing. It's just, Job, darling, curse God and die. She's the first person to speak. I won't go to verse 10 quite yet. A lot of times, and, and perhaps rightly so to some degree, Job's wife, Mrs. Job, has words that very much reflect Satan's accusation, right? God, if you smite him, he will curse you to your face. And that's essentially what she's saying, right? Curse God and die. Do exactly, and she doesn't know, nobody knows except us now from, from having the record written down, but nobody contemporary to Job in that situation. Now, eventually, obviously, somebody knew the heavenly court scene, what was going on between God and Satan, the whole thing, and the challenge and the, and the, the, the court of, of uh, proving God right and so forth. But on earth, nobody knew it. She didn't know that that's what Satan said. She didn't know that God himself had endorsed and affirmed Job. Do you see Job? Do you still see? Even though you, you incited me against him for nothing, he still holds fast his integrity. And Job's wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Or in other words, what are you doing? Why do you, consider, do you, do you continue to maintain your righteousness? Why do you continue to, to put yourself forward as righteous and God is righteous? Just find fault with God, curse him, and he will, he will, he'll put you out of your misery, out of your suffering. Curse him and die. She was driven to a despair much before Job. But don't worry, Job is, is 
If you read the next chapter, he enters into that same despair. It's not that these are easy things for Job or his wife to deal with. It's not for us when we encounter suffering and trials and difficulties that it's easy. No, it's not easy. It's not something that's desirable. You wouldn't choose to go through any of these things. And yet God in his mercy, God in his steadfastness, God in his strength is made perfect. His strength is perfected in our weakness when we are beyond ourselves. And that's what Job's wife is saying. This is beyond you. This is, this is beyond your strength. It's beyond my strength. I can't bear to see you suffering any more like this. So she was driven to this despair much before Job, but Job is, is right to follow. She believes unwittingly, perhaps, we know because we can put things together. Wait a minute. She's saying the same things in the opposite of what God said in favor of Job. He, you know, he still holds fast in integrity. And then she affirms what Satan said. Just bless God. Bless God is the same thing as the same word as we see here. Curse God is the same thing. It's like in a, in a negative, negative sense. Uh, you know, he will, he'll, he'll bless you all right kind of a thing. He will give you praise. He will give you honor. And, but she's saying it No. Find fault with God, say, God did this to me, he's in the wrong, and he'll kill you, put you out of your suffering, and that'll be it. But even that estimation, wouldn't it be better to be in a right relationship with God now because there is much more? I mean, can you even find that little atom I'm pointing to, that little atom of oxygen I'm pointing to? Can you see that? That's life. That's human existence. Not just your existence, the whole of humanity. From Adam to the last whatever. That right there. That Oh, there it went. Eternity is outside of that. Would you rather have comfort and security and be proved right in this little... Oh, where'd it go? This vanity of vanities, this little soap bubble that just is there for a moment and gone? Or would you rather be right in eternity? Would you rather have a relationship with God that holds you through that little fleeting existence into eternity? into an everlasting status. She is thinking in a very short term, you're hurting Job, I'm hurting with you, let's just get this over with. God has deeper purposes and his purposes will prevail. We have this momentary light affliction. Wait a minute, what is it? It's momentary and it's light. It seems heavy, it seems like it's lasted all my life. It's momentary and it's light, even if it did last your whole life, right? That little fleeting atom. But we have for us an exceeding weight of glory, an exceeding weight of glory waiting for us because of what Christ has done. So she is setting her sight on much lower than she ought to be. She's opposing what God has said and affirming what Satan has said. Unwittingly, she didn't know what they had said in heaven. But even so, her counsel to Job even though it's here in this context rebuffed and refuted and, and challenged, Job just can't help thinking of the same things. I'm right. And he was, right? The first verse says he is these things. That his, those characteristics of Job are reaffirmed three times in these first two chapters, twice by God himself. But it's not about Job's rightness. It's not about his righteousness. It's about God's righteousness. It's about God's sovereignty, God's purpose that prevails, even though we don't understand we don't get how, how, how God, why God, what are you doing, God? But did you notice how all those questions ended? God, 
any question we direct to God because he is the one who's in charge. He's the one in control. He's the one who is loving and good and generous and gentle and gracious and merciful to us. Do you remember even in the Garden of Gethsemane when our Lord Jesus was praying in that garden, he had perhaps the greatest temptation ever presented. You might, okay, yes, those, those temptations in Luke 4, Matthew 4, that was, those were serious. Don't question that. They were the attacks of Satan trying to get Jesus to act independently of the Father's will and, and design for his life, contrary to the, to the law, Mosaic law, and Jesus passed those tests. But here in the garden, when Satan comes against him for the last time and says, there's a way out, you don't have to die. You're going to die for these people who are, I mean, even your own, your top three guys, they're sleeping. You've seen it three times. They're sleeping. You ask them to, to watch and pray. They're sleeping. People hate you. They don't want, why would you die for people like this? Why would you suffer for enemies? Why would you give yourself over for them? Just end it all. Worship me. And I'll give you everything you ever wanted. Jesus, when he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That encapsulates that whole contest, a whole challenge of don't do what God wants you to do. You do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. But Jesus says, yet not my will, but your will be done. Do you know how excruciating that was? And I say that very wittingly. Excruciating means from the cross, right? Crux, crux, the crux of the matter, the cross of the matter. Excruciating pain he had. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. He was beyond his physical human capabilities. We think, wait a minute, Jesus, God, man, eternal, strong, power to save, powerful to save. He was so needy in that moment. He wasn't even on the cross yet. But an angel from heaven appeared to him. God the Father sent the angel, go and strengthen my son. He has a job to fulfill. And verse 44, Luke 22, 44 says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. We think Job had it bad, and he did. I'm not taking anything from him. But all of Job's sufferings points to Christ, who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And here in agony, for his own self, yes, but because what he was about to do was to become sin, to become the guilty sacrifice on behalf of not people that were favorable to him, people who hated him, spat upon him, mocked him, called him names, didn't believe in him, turned away from him, just wanted to have the next, you know, the, make, get to the Passover meal on time and, you know, with their, their nice uh, attire on. Just let's get this over with so we can get on with our business. Jesus died for them. Job's wife had a perspective that was wrong in the context there, but, you know, in the long run, she was right. Not the curse God part, but Job, forget your integrity. Who are you to question God? Which is essentially what God himself says in chapters 38 and 39, 40 and 41, 42, where God himself comes. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Job, what are you doing? How dare you say these things? So her counsel is valid in some respects. Do you still hold fast your integrity? If it's between you and God, Job, you lose. Not because he's wicked, not because he's sinful, but because God is right. God is always right. And regardless of how it affects us in our lives, we submit to God. Not in a passive resignation, you know, um, 
sera, sera, whatever it will be, it's fine. Just uh, get me out of this thing. No, we entrust ourselves. We say, God, here I am. I am yours. Save me. Deliver me, even from my own self. In the end, she says, curse God and die. Job, the last, chap- last verse of the whole book is, Job died, full of years. He did die, and then he received his reward. Not the reward he had on earth, but the reward of knowing God better. She didn't see any hope of reversal. All the wealth is gone. Our kids are dead. Job, your health is ruined. There's no possible way. And yet even that shows the, the limits of human knowledge, the limits of human hope and faith and, and uh, expectation of God's mercy. God is able to raise the dead. He didn't raise the dead children to Job. He gave 10 different children. Uh, he restored the, the, the livestock and all these kinds of things and Job's health, of course, and, and these things. But Job's wife did not see any reversal going on here. In fact, that's how it says in, at the end of Job 42, God restored the fortunes. He turned the fortunes of Job and gave back all the stuff, not all the stuff, different stuff. Uh, and yet uh, we, we see that God is right and Job is right at the same time. And we affirm the fact that God's wisdom is tremendous. Don't need to curse him. Don't need to say anything negative about him, bad about him. No, we're going to be careful to praise God, which is what Job has been careful, at least the first time at the end of chapter one. And again, he hasn't spoken yet. What's he going to say? Is is he going to agree with his wife? Is he going to say, you know, you're right. God has wronged me. Now, thankfully, actually, not thankfully, in Job 19, he does say twice, God has wronged me. God has done me a bad service. I don't understand it. So he's going to get there himself. But at this point, how is he going to respond to his wife? Verse 10 says, But, or and, he said to her, You speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we accept, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? Notice his response. Thankfully, he still has his wits about him. He, we, we rehearsed some of, we cataloged some of the painful issues he's going through, you know, bone, fever in his bones, uh, lack of appetite, just nothing tastes good to him. He can't keep anything down, just uh, everything goes right through him. Uh, he, he has these sores that are just oozing all over the place. He has um, worms that are kind of growing and just all nasty stuff. And yet he still has his mind about him, which is very important because... How is Job going to respond to these things? How is he going to curse God or how is he going to bless God? But first he speaks directly to his wife. You speak not as a foolish woman. Woman, wife, you are a foolish woman. No, that's not what he says. He says, you're speaking, what I'm hearing words out of your mouth, that doesn't sound like you, dear wife. You're speaking like you've heard the the as it says here, the wickedly foolish women speak. That's not you. That's not how we have cultivated our relationship. That's not how you relate to Yahweh. You are speaking out of your mind, out of your senses. Job, at, least at this point, is speaking with his mind and with his uh, self-control, with his wits about him. And he says, my dear wife, these words are not right coming out of your mouth. They are wickedly foolish. Now, this word wickedly foolish here translated can have three different senses depending on where we read about it in scripture one of these senses is uh, just ignorant just not ignorant in a negative sense but just you don't know 
I'm ignorant of, of a lot of different things. I, I just don't, I don't, I don't know about these things. But it can also be a willful ignorance. You know, I, I don't know how to raise godly children, so I guess I'll just not even bother to do it. No, that's, that's a passive, wicked uh, ignorance, and that's not encouraged. Lacking discernment. No, we, we want to have discernment. So we, our, our knowledge is limited, and yet we ought not to be foolish about it and say, vaunt our ignorance and say, you know, I don't know, and I don't, I don't care kind of thing. No, we want to pursue what can be intellectually known. We want to know things. We want to be discerning about these things. But you know, this first sense of intellectual ignorance, being foolish, is what God accuses Job of later. Chapter 38, verse 2. Chapter 40, verse 2. Chapter 42, verse 2. Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? You don't know, Job, what you're talking about. You've said some things right about me, a lot of good things, but what is this? Who are you to question me? Who, who are you, Job? Have you done this? Do you know this? Have you done that? Do you know why this is? Do you know where this is? Do you know when these things happen? No, you don't. So who are you? You're talking ignorantly. So here it's translated wickedly foolish. It could be this, this second category. First one being intellectual ignorance. The second use of this word uh, wickedly foolish can refer to those who are wicked those who are religiously godless. Uh, uh, for example, Psalm 14 and verse 1, the wicked fool send his, says in his heart, there's no God. The wicked fools, not just ignorance because everybody knows there's a God. We suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So that kind of uh, reflects that intellectual ignorance, which is a willful intellectual ignorance. I don't want to acknowledge the things I know to be certain, but then there are these who suppress it for wicked reasons, those who are uh, uh, religiously godless. And it could be that's what he's saying here, uh, that, again, as it's translated, wickedly foolish. These are the wicked. They are haughty in countenance. God doesn't, they don't seek God. And all his thoughts are, there's no God. That's Psalm 10 and verse 4. So there's that wicked kind of uh, sense of foolishness. And maybe that's what, what he's getting at here. There's a third uh, category of, of use here with this word, and that is to be common or to be low class or to be ignoble is the sense. It's contrasted with nobility. Uh, Isaiah 32 and verse 5, no longer will the fool, wicked fool, ignorant fool, common fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous, which is to say the villain or the scoundrel. The contrast here is not so much of uh, intellectual ignorance or, or godless impiety, but of, of just ignoble. Who, who is this person? They're not noble. They're not generous, you know, being, uh, extending the hand to help other people. And so he's saying, look, either, wife, either you're, you don't know what you're talking about, which is true. She doesn't know what she's talking about. You are religiously impious. You hate God. And so therefore you say, curse God and die. I don't know if that's the case really for her. I mean, it says it wickedly foolish here, which I'll accept. But again, we have these different uses of the term. And it could be just a vulgar speech. You're speaking... You're better than this, essentially, is what Job is saying to his wife. You, you know better than this. You are better than this. How, how dare you approach me with an accusation against God, against Yahweh, who, who, who has uh, proven himself more and more. In fact, Job, at the end of the chapter, or at the beginning of chapter 42, says, I have heard you with the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. My eyes have seen you. And so he repents in dust and ashes. He's already in dust and ashes, but he repents even further because of his revelation of God. So he corrects, he refutes the, the counsel of his wife, 
who again is speaking out of her pain, the pain she sees her husband in. She's concerned about him. He refutes her and yet he is infected by her pessimism and her despair. And he will speak a lot out of the overflow of, of the pain, always measured, always for, for the glory of God, but challenging God, saying, I'm a good person. How dare you let these things happen to me? He's going to say that next. But first, he says this question. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? This is the right answer. Just like he said in verse 21, chapter 1, Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? How, who are we to say, no, God, um, I just want the good things in life. Don't, don't give me the bad things. Don't give me the challenging things. I just want the good stuff. This contrast between good and calamity or good and bad is throughout Scripture. In fact, it is not speaking so much of what is morally wrong or sinful. It's not like God is giving us sinful things. No, God is not tempted by sin and he doesn't tempt anybody to sin. He tests us. He gives trials for us to prove our faith and prove his faithfulness. But all those things are not evil in a a moral sense. They're not wicked. They're not sinful. What we see here, these calamities, it is withholding what is uh, good, withholding that which is beneficial or adding something that is hurtful or detrimental. Again, in a human perspective. I mean, who wants to be tested? Who wants to be tried on these different things? But these tests and trials are confirming our faith, are confirming our maturity, are confirming God's faithfulness in our lives. So we see the combination of good and calamity, good and evil, uh, benefit and harm. Uh, in the language of Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15, God says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity on one side, life and prosperity on one side, and on the other side, death and calamity. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15. This is in the context, of course, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant that God made with his nation Israel. And he says, I'll bless you if you obey. I'll curse you if you disobey. I will give you life and prosperity. That word prosperity is the same word we have here, good. Shall we indeed accept good, prosperity, life, blessing from God and not accept um, death, calamity in the Mosaic covenant, Mosaic legislation? That was the result of disobedience. Death, calamity, evil, befalling. God didn't want those, that thing, those things for his people. He wanted to establish them. But because of their uh, sinfulness, he brought that, those consequences upon them. Ecclesiastes 7, another context where we see this, these phrases, good and calamity, or in this context uh, translated good and evil. Ecclesiastes 7, 13, 14. See the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Who's more powerful? I think I got it. God bent that thing, but I can unbend it. No. Who's able to do that? Nobody. In the day when there is good, be of good cheer. But on the day when there is evil, see, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not find out anything that will be after him. Who's in charge here? It's not me. It's not not even my, my strong friend over here. It's God. God. In that day when there's good, hey, be happy. But in the day of adversity, the day when there's calamity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other. Wait a minute. God is behind calamities in life? Yes. Yes. What about, you know, uh, genetic def- uh, deformities in, in babies? Is he behind that too? Yes. What about storms that kill people and destroy property? 
Is God behind that? Yes. Is God in that? Does God have a purpose in these things? Yes. Exodus 4 and verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute and, or deaf or seeing or blind? We don't know. No, wait a minute. Is it not I, Yahweh? Isn't God the one who brings blessing and adversity, blessing, good things, and the calamitous catastrophes that we would say, oh, I wish those things hadn't happened. Isaiah 45 and verse 7, I am the one forming light and creating darkness. I form light and I create darkness. I produce peace and I create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Is our view of God big enough to affirm what God is saying about himself, that he's behind the obvious good things in our lives and the obvious bad things in our lives. He produces all these things for his own glory, for his own purposes. Do you remember two examples in the New Testament, both in John, John 9, when Jesus is passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is in Jerusalem. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? I mean, what's the deal? Why did this, call, why, why did this guy get born with, with this blindness? Was it this man who sinned or was it his parents who sinned? Because obviously being blind is, is a result of sin, right? Well, yes, it's a result of sin entering the world. But Jesus answered, John 9 and verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned in the sense of causing this. It was The blindness was not as a result or a consequence of their sin. But this was... So this man was born blind so that the works of God might be manifest in him. Wait a minute, this whole thing. And this is, this is a grown man. He was born blind. He hasn't seen a lick of anything all of his life. Well, that's horrible. That's bad. He's in a bad situation. He's impoverished. He's all these negative things about him. This was so, this is also that the work of, works of God might be manifested in him. Is it worth it? To see the works of God manifested in this guy? Is it worth all your years of pain and struggle and striving and mockery and, and uh, rejection and all this? Is it worth it to see the God's works manifested in him? I think he would say yes. John 9. You can read the rest. Of, it's a beautiful comic even uh, passage there about how this man recognizes he is Jesus is, verse 5 actually says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light. The first thing, actually not the first thing he saw, but anyway, read the text that you can, you can find out what, what's going on there. Another example, John 11, verse 4. Do you remember how Jesus had a very good friend? His name was Lazarus. Not the guy, Lazarus and the rich man and all that, but a different Lazarus, a brother of Mary and Martha. And he was sick and he died. But Jesus said, John 11, verse 4, This sickness is not to end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. It's not just about Lazarus and his health and even the care of his sisters, because they were unmarried, living in his brother, their brother's house. And if Lazarus dies, it changes everything. Obviously for Lazarus, but for his sisters. And, but God says, Jesus says here, The sickness does not end in death. But it's for the glory of God. Now, wait a minute. Almost the next verse says, Lazarus died. Wait a minute. Jesus said it's not to end in death. How, what? Ah, it didn't end there. It included death. Death was part of the formula to have the Son of God glorified in these things. What about Romans 8? The last eight or nine verses there. Do you read those things? 
I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor those other things mentioned. But if you back up just a few verses, are we not being put to death all day long on account of him? Are we not suffering all these things? And yet, I know I cannot be separated from God's love. I can face all these trials knowing that they always pass through the hand of my loving father, my jealous father, who is jealous not just for his kids' benefit, but for his own glory. God is so jealous for his glory. He is so much animated that he would receive glory, that all the nations would give glory to Christ, that the Son of God would be glorified in these different things. So Job is saying here, Job 2 and verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? No, we accept these things. And not in a, in a passive, uh, resentful kind of, well, I'll, I'll take it, but I don't have to like it kind of thing. No, this idea of accept is, is with open hands receiving from God. God, I, I, whatever you have for me is good. Ultimately, I know. Because whatever you do is for your glory, and whatever you do for your glory is for my good, and your glory is my greatest good. And so I want whatever you want for me. I receive it, humbly bowing before the God who is so loving in his providence, loving in his care, loving in his, his sovereign exercise of his omniscience. He knows everything. I mean, he knows things that we, do, we don't even know the questions to ask to get to the knowledge that he has about himself, which is the most deep thing. We think, oh, if we can just get to the recesses of the atom and the subatoms and all those different things, that, that would be real knowledge. It's nothing. God created that. It's not, that's not a big discovery. God made it. It's neat for us and we ought to, to explore and so forth, but to probe the depths of God. That is what we have benefit of in this life and in eternity, probing, understanding, knowing God better. When he says, we accept, shall we not accept, it's not a bitter, resentful, uh, just resignation to fate. You know, whatever will be, will be. And, and you just can't trust, you know, what good and bad happened to everybody. No. Yet, well, yes, good and bad happened to everybody. But God is working all things together for good for those who love him. He says, shall we indeed, shall we, we be selective and say, God, you know, appreciate the good things and just keep those coming. And anything bad, you can forward to somebody else. Give those to my neighbor. I don't really want those things. But. No, good and bad. Again, the saying that we have in our family that we want to have open hands before the Lord so he can put and take as he sees fit. Putting and taking. God gave, right? Job 1, 21. God gave, Yahweh gave, and God has taken away. Who's in charge here? Who knows best? Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity or calamity? We want to trust ourselves to him. We want to entrust, as Jesus did, First Peter 4 and verse 19, that we must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. First Peter uh, 2, uh, verse 23, Christ kept entrusting himself to God, the Father, who judges righteously. Even at the end, again, Jesus came to die. That's his, that's his ultimate purpose, to die on the cross for sins and then, of course, be raised up. But in all the opposition he had, ultimately being the opposition from God the Father himself, turning his back away from, from Jesus, and Jesus dying a shameful, shameful, wicked criminal death on the cross for a bunch of sinners who didn't even recognize what he was doing. At the end, his last words, Father, 
into your hands I commit my spirit. Who's he committing himself to? Not himself. I've got power. I'm going to do this my own self. He says, I'm entrusting myself to God. I know God will do and judge righteously. Did Jesus accept only the good things from God and not the calamity, not the adversity? No, even at the end, he accepted and entrusted himself to God. Verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What he spoke was right. It was hard, hard for his wife to hear, but he did not sin with his lips. And some people say, oh, well, he didn't sin with his lips, but we know what was going on in his heart. We know he was really a troublesome. We know he was just cursing God left and right. Oh, if you could just get an insight into his heart. Well, the point is, what is in the heart is what comes out in the lips. And he did not curse God, sin. He did not sin with his lips. The lips, uh, one commentator said, the lips express a person's deepest thoughts. They are uh, what is the, the mouthpiece of our hearts. And if you keep your lips, then you may guard knowledge. Proverbs 5 and verse 2 says that you may keep, what says wisdom book for us, so you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. Well, it's not just the lips, it's just, you know, it's the lips are, are the, the signal post or the communication, the output device of what's going on in the heart. If Job did not sin with his lips, that means what was going on in his heart was profoundly good and, and accurate and, and uh, praising to God. Do you know this verse, Proverbs 10 and verse 19? When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who holds back his lips has insight. In a multitude of words, I think New American Standard says, in a multitude of words, sin is unavoidable. But he who keeps his lips is wise, has insight. Be careful what you say. And you think, oh, if Job could just stop speaking right here at the end of chapter 2, and we can just jump to chapter 42, wouldn't that be great? Job, watch your lips. Be careful what you say. What about Job's friends, which we'll meet next time, whom we'll meet next time? They were very verbose, had lots of words. But they weren't very helpful. They, were, they had some accurate, some true statements, but just the way they went about it and the, and the way that they spoke with such uh, arrogance and, and knowledge and, and all this, I think they have, have it all figured out. I think they have God figured out, have an explanation for everything. No, they don't know it. Their wisdom is, is limited and off base in, in many respects. So be careful how you speak. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked know what is perverse. Job here did not sin with his lips. And again, that's the whole challenge. The first test, Satan said to God, he'll, he'll curse you to your face. And then the second test, he will curse you to his face. Did Job curse God? He did not. Job passed the test. And if you don't mind, God passed the test because the accusation that Satan had was not so much about Job, but about God. That God, because the only reason God says, Satan, that you have followers is because you pay them, you bribe them, you give them good things and you take those good things away. They won't follow you. They won't love you. They won't have any, anything to do with you because you're not worth it. You aren't worth loving, worshiping, devoting your lives to because you're just, yeah. I mean, all this, I mean, that's basically what Satan is saying. Finding fault with God should we only accept the good things from God and not accept calamity? Last idea, last thought, and we'll be done. The greatest calamity, the greatest calamity that could befall any human has been removed for those who are in Christ. Wait a minute, what is the great, what's the greatest calamity again? How about, 
God's avenging just wrath in everlasting punishment for sin. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? We don't want that calamity. We don't want that judgment. I mean, that, that is a no turning back kind of a judgment. There's no restoring fortunes from eternal everlasting punishment. But you know what? Shall we not indeed accept good? There is a great transformation, a great reversal in our lives coming to Christ. There's a great reversal for Christ himself. First, or 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus. So God made Jesus who knew practically, mentally, cognitively, didn't know sin, didn't think about sinful thoughts and did not do it in his life, didn't speak it. God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, if you don't mind pushing that truth forward, Jesus accepted the greatest adversity, the greatest judgment, going even beyond adversity, bad situations. He accepted judgment, not for himself, but for sinful, wicked enemies of himself, so that we, the wicked, could become the righteousness of God in him. We can accept the good from God because Jesus took the bad. Do you believe it? Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the gift of your grace upon us and the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place so that we could have forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. I pray that each soul here would be trusting wholly in Jesus' name, trusting wholly in him for the forgiveness of sin and for life, real life, eternal life. We thank you for the knowledge of sin for ourselves, the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings upon us. Please help us to, as Job did, and as Jesus did, turn from sin and turn to you and find our satisfaction in you because you are the fountain of living waters. You are the only thing, ultimately, that is good for us to know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is life. Please help us, especially this day, to celebrate Christ as our King, as our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our protector, our refuge, our rock, our redeemer. We pray in his name. Amen.